0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 49 of Ask the CEO with Abraham Garthal. Today, I'd like to introduce a very special guest. She is the Chief Executive Officer of Health Informatics Society of Australia, also known as HISA, Australia's Digital Health Community. As a leader of Australia's Peak Body for Digital Health, she's a passionate advocate for the transformation of healthcare. Committed to the improvement of health outcomes enabled through innovative use of technology and information. She has a global reputation in health informatics and digital health and is shaping a new future for Hiza. With a background as an occupational therapist, she has a PhD in technology acceptance among health professionals, is a graduate of Stanford's Executive Leadership Program, a certified health informatician and a Salzburg Global Seminar Fellow. She has delivered over 100 conference presentations She's written for academic and industry publications and textbooks, is the host of the Dissecting Digital Health podcast, and wonder upon wonder, she is still always available online. It is my honor and pleasure to welcome from the land down under the one and only Dr. Louise Schaefer. Welcome. (laughs)
1: hi Abraham that was um a long intro no thank you very much for having me on the show it's um I might have delivered a lot of keynote presentations but this is my first uh like podcast interview so uh, I'm looking forward to it
0: well then it is definitely an honor having you as the first
1: cool well thank you for asking
0: yeah so whereabouts in Australia are you
1: so at the moment, I, um, well, I'm broadcasting live from my office at Heiser, which, and we're in Melbourne in uh, Victoria, Australia, and it is just gone eight o'clock in the morning.
0: Wow, that's fantastic. So here I am in New York, and it is 6pm, so we're in yesterday, you're in tomorrow, and we're time-traveling all over the place.
1: That's right, yeah. Is there anything you want me to, want me to tell you about the future? You can ask, that's okay. <laughs>
0: Absolutely. Just let me know what the lotto tickets are, and we'll split it.
1: All right,
0: great. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So, um, Louise, thank you again for joining. I am so excited by Haiza's accomplishments in the field of digital health. So if we could just start and take a moment and just take us through a little bit about what Haiza does and what do you do?
1: Sure. Okay. So HISA, we are a non-profit member organization. So basically we um, exist for the purpose of our members and anybody can join. And the people who do join are clinicians, researchers, uh, digital health executives, students, um, uh, vendors, people from software companies, hardware companies. It's a, it's a really diverse church that comes into digital health, as I'm sure you find in America and other parts of the world as well. Um, And, uh, the reason they join us is because we all are trying to improve healthcare and how uh, we know that we can do that is through uh, better use of information and communication technologies uh, throughout the healthcare system. So uh, so that's why people become uh, members of us. And uh, what do I do? Um, yeah, that's probably that's interesting. <laughs> because It's certainly different to what I expected. I've, I've been CEO of Heisner for almost eight years now. And uh, I must admit that when I took on the job and I was really excited to um, be offered it, but in my head, I was thinking eh, two years because, you know, I get bored easily. So I thought oh, I'll give it two years and then I'll get bored and I'll go do something else. And it's almost eight years later and I am anything but bored. So um, I still feel like um, we've got a lot of work to do. And, uh, and it's such a privilege to be in the position of bringing the community together to help uh, improve healthcare. care that, uh, yeah, that's, that's why I'm here.
0: That is so beautiful to hear. And that is a testament to Heise's mission and what it does, that it's in a perfect alignment to your why, to why you do what you're doing.
1: It is. It's just. I just couldn't imagine uh, anything else and interestingly um, as you mentioned in the intro I've been doing a, a podcast series where I interview digital health leaders from around the world and uh, I, li- I love podcasts and I listen to all sorts of podcasts myself and uh, and I also listen to them not just for um, entertainment or educational purposes but also to learn how to be a better interviewer myself so I'm always you know going oh that's a great question I'll, I'll steal that one and put it into my interview and, um, and one of the- the ones that i thought was great was that i heard somebody else ask um, and it was an entertainment podcast uh people in television and uh she asked the presenters oh well if you weren't after they've covered all of the highlights of their career and how they got to where they are she asked them all right well if you weren't doing this what would you what else would you be doing you know and it's random stuff like it could be you want always wanted to be a dancer or a florist or something like that and um i asked that um i asked that for a few and i realized i just can't I actually is an inappropriate question for me to ask in my podcast because everybody who is involved in digital health are so passionate. It's their life mission. And they really are, like myself. Can't imagine doing anything else. Uh,
0: yeah. So, yeah. yeah, for sure. And that's definitely one of our trade secrets. <laughs>
1: That's right. Yeah. Well, I just think, you know, it's regardless, maybe digital health isn't your thing, but whatever you're interested in, and especially if you're a cause driven mission driven person, uh, you know, you care more about leaving some sort of legacy, leaving a footprint behind where you leave the world in a better place than where you found it, then uh, you need to just choose something that you really care about. And then you'll never have to work a day in your life again.
0: Absolutely. So I am, I'm very fond of Simon Sinek. And his
1: oh, yes. Life. Yes, no, that's right. Yes, I made all my staff watch his video numerous times during our internal strategic planning sessions.
0: Beautiful. So let's talk a little bit about the I in HISA, which is informatics or also known as information. So as you know, in, not just in the medical world, but in every industry, there are information silos. So, what are some of the challenges that these information silos presents in the digital health environment?
1: Yeah, look, that's an interesting question, and it's actually the problem of information silos in healthcare effectively defines what this entire industry is about. So, um, people who aren't in healthcare, and this is a global problem, uh, it doesn't matter whether you're in the states, Israel. Um, you know, Australia, Africa, it really is a global problem that by and large, uh, healthcare runs on bits of paper. And um, even in the States where hospitals have become uh, far more digital in recent years, thanks to legislation and, and financial incentives uh, put in place by the Obama administration. Um, even then, uh, it's still very siloed. So um, what ends up, it's just, it's strange that in 2017, I must say, when I meet people that are outside our industry and I have to try and explain why I do what I do and I talk to them and they, they always look with puzzlement because they're like, what do you mean uh, healthcare runs on paper? Like every other industry that you can think of, logistics you know um uber like every every industry has computer technology to connect the different stakeholders in the in the field um and to make your business run more effectively and efficiently and it's insane that we would think that we had to present a business case to accountants to stop you using abacuses to then use calculators to then start using excel spreadsheets and then find um, and then financial software like it's just it would be crazy it's like of course if you can see that there's it's going to make your job easier you would Use technology, and yet in healthcare um, we we operate in silos, and it is a substantial problem. So while um you know, people might think that we do health IT projects in healthcare and we use air quotes on purpose because they're not IT projects, they're cultural change and organisational change projects. Um, and that's because in healthcare, the way that medicine is effectively taught is to see things in silos and everything runs in silos. The business models of healthcare across the globe are siloed. So, um, and I'll give you an example um, from recent experience. I was speaking at a conference of young healthcare leaders and I was talking about this siloed problem, and uh, what a problem it is, uh, and how unsafe it is, and and uh, and it's also just a pain in the butt to be honest for um, for clinicians and for and for patients. And after my speech, a young doctor came up to me, and he was distraught. He's like, "Oh my God, I'm one I'm one of those doctors you talked about." And I was like, "Calm down. What's wrong?" And and he said, "Well, the other day I realised I'd sent the same poor patient for the same test three different times." And I didn't realise it until the third, uh, and until after the third time when she came back to see me, and he said, "No, I was thinking, how did I do that?" And it was because actually in the hospital he works at, they do have an electronic health system, the um, clinical care record system that is across the hospital. But um, he first saw her on the crazy busyness, chaotic uh, nature of the ED department, and then he saw her on two different wards as she was moved around. And of course, he didn't remember that he'd seen the exact same person. He he was just looking at her charts and going, oh, okay, this is, the, this is the symptoms you have. All right, I need to go and send you for these tests. And, um, and he didn't realise. And that was because even though there's an electronic medical record at that hospital the, um, and the same brand of electronic medical record, each different ward, including the ED, used a different module and they weren't connected. So he had no way of, of the computer didn't know that he had seen a person because there were three different systems. Um, so it is a massive problem um, and it's incredibly expensive um, that we do things like repeat tests uh, and, uh, and um, we have a lot of adverse event problems. Actually, if you don't mind, um, I've got s- some statistics. It's the only thing I sort of note that I wrote down just because I didn't want to get it wrong. But um, healthcare, because of these, these information silos, um, it's incredibly dangerous. And these statistics are old, like we're talking 15 years old, what I'm going to say but if, if, uh, if you and, and you know the analogy is often made in healthcare to the aviation industry and how, how safety conscious they are and um, healthcare is way more complex than aviation but they do have these checks in place and we don't always have them in healthcare and we have these information silos problems and so if you looked at um, the amount of preventable error that happens just in hospitals alone uh, in uh, three different countries it's incredibly high so uh, if you think about 416 seats in a Boeing 747 plane. And if that plane was to crash of course there would be and everyone was to die there would be outrage in whichever city you live in um they'd probably close down the airports for a few days to try and work out quickly there would be a huge um a huge social and political and economic demand to fix this problem and make sure we knew why that plane crashed why 416 people died and why um and and to make sure that we could prevent it so it didn't happen again and, and everyone sort of accepts that, that that would happen. And yet in healthcare, um, in Australia, we're, we're a smaller country than the US, but we've got effectively about 14,000 people every year die in hospitals. That's equivalent to two seven four seven crashes every month. In wow. the UK, yeah, um, and the numbers go higher when you've got larger populations. So, in the UK, we're looking at about 44,000 people that's two crashes every week, and in the USA, um, we're looking at um, almost 100,000 people die unnecessarily in the healthcare system that's 235 crashes a year or two crashes every three days. Um, wow. So, these are some of the amazing and um, terrifying um, safety statistics. And they're the ones that are reported. And and by and, la- by and large, these are not, these errors don't happen because doctors and nurses are bad at their jobs. Um, they happen because doctors and nurses, which are the, the professions that tend to make the life and death decisions minute by minute in, on uh, on the shop floor of hospitals, um, but they don't have the right tools to do the job. So they're doing the very best job they can in an incredibly hectic, chaotic environment. Sometimes they haven't, uh, they've been on shift for, you know, 16 hours. And then, you know, we rock up and we're bleeding and there's something wrong with us, um, or we've been on the ward for a while and, and you know, but our medication chart. Hasn't been updated, whatever the case may be, and um, and they make the best decisions they can with the information that's made available to them. But because by and large it's not connected, there are these information silos. Um, very basic errors happen, and uh, it just astounds me that that is not the front cover of every newspaper because if it was um, we would have solved the problem by now because it's not a technical one technology um, you know we've advanced a lot in 2017 but uh, um, culturally and organizationally and the business models of healthcare need to modify a lot and and all these things are what us and, and our members are working to strive to improve
0: yeah. yeah. And, you know, astounded is the right word, because if you think about it, like you said, there are three plane crashes, equivalent of three plane crashes every single week in the US, but it's not on the front cover. So forget the expense about having information silos, just the mistakes that happen because of that is just mind blowing.
1: Oh, yeah, it happens all the time. And because of the nature of what I do, people always have a personal story to tell. And um, one that's more personal to me is uh, my cousin was in the army and um, until recently actually and this was probably 10 or so years ago this happened and anyway he fell in love with a, another a, another woman from the army and they were training to be elite SAS in Australia which is sort of like your Navy SEAL type thing so they're like elite athletes and elite soldiers and um, anyway and he's uh, uh, he just got married and his wife had something really minor that she had to go to hospital for it's like gallstones or something like that anyway and she died in hospital and the reason she died is because um and you think again the army best quality care uh you know and pretty straightforward operation um but they didn't have the information made available to them that she's allergic to penicillin so they gave her penicillin which is very common and it killed her and you know and they were only married a few months so you know this sort of everybody's you know i'm I'm sure the people listening to this podcast as well will think of hopefully it hasn't happened to them but somebody that they know or someone in their family has had an adverse event happen in hospital which was because not because they were sick it was because of um because of the environment they were in uh that uh, that bad things happen and as i said it's really not the fault of doctors and nurses and occupational therapists and other allied health professionals it really is this, a system uh, that needs to be uh modified and changed and it, it's a big wicked problem
0: yeah for sure so yeah. how does haiza go about working towards changing this
1: yeah yeah so well we do what we can so um firstly we um we're all about the community so a lot of what we do is about bringing people together whether that's in person or online and You know, I could give you a big long list of benefits of why people join organisations like mine and and there is equivalence in other countries. Um, But there's really two main reasons people join a non-profit when you're interested in the the cause or the mission and that's for networking and professional development. Uh, So they're they're the key things that we focus on and that we deliver. So one of the things, we've we've been around since 1992 uh, and the reason I mention that is while that um, doesn't seem like a long time, technical, as far as, computer technology goes that's huge so and in that
0: 1992 <laughs>
1: that's right yeah, yeah in 1992 the only complete geeks had computers and they were for playing very very basic games or doing advanced mathematical calculations um no one had a personal computer really there was certainly no much so uh, the internet hadn't been invented for the i know it had but for the majority of us we didn't know about this thing called the internet and yet back then a group of doctors and nurses Established HISA, and they thought, you know, I think there's something to this use of computer technology in, in healthcare, and we can try and improve technology and um, healthcare, to, um, but using technology to connect people and to connect information. And that was sort of the broad mission of when they established HISA, and it, and it hasn't really changed. We might have modified the language a little, but it hasn't really changed from those days' beginnings. So, what one of the things HISA has always done, and, and which is really common in nonprofits, is we run a conference, and so we now run four conferences. As a year, um, and uh, webinars, and all sorts of events. I think we. At last count, we were running over 50 events a year. Wow. Um, uh, yes, which is great. And so those events work to impart knowledge to people um, for you uh, with the knowledge that you have as well, to impart your knowledge and share it with others and to bring people together. Um, and so that's a key focus. And we actually just had our big national conference, which is called HIC, the Health Information Conference, uh, two, three weeks ago in Brisbane. Um, so we run these events and we bring people together and we share knowledge. And professional development. We also, um, one of the key focus areas for uh, not just my organization, but for more organizations like ours uh, that are in the States and the UK and elsewhere is workforce. So still it's, it's, it does seem insane because it is, but in 2017, the majority of people who claim, uh, who train at university or college uh, to become a healthcare professional, don't learn about digital health. They don't learn about informatics. Um, They, at the very most, they they might learn about how to use a particular um, EMR system for a hospital, but they vary. Um, And yet we expect them to hit the wards per, per se, and actually understand how to use the technology that's presented to them. But most importantly, why? Um, And the why is never, you know, you mentioned Simon Sinek, the why of why we need to actually use technology in healthcare is is not taught at uh, university or college level yet. By and large, there are POTS. Again, there are pockets and silos of really great stuff, but by and large, that doesn't happen. So one of the things that we launched uh, back in 2013 it was, uh, we launched a certification program in health informatics. And what that means is that if you consider that you're an e-health, digital health, health informatics expert, um, or you want to be one, you can um, take an exam and if you pass the exam, you get to be certified in health informatics. Um, That program has been incredibly successful. We've had um, almost 300 people now are certified in health informatics. Most of them live in Australia, but we have international customers as well. And um, that workforce reform, that need for recognition of the knowledge that you have and how your knowledge in digital health and health informatics is different and unique and incredibly valuable to healthcare systems than other professions is something that we are also working on at an international level uh, because it's something that we we see workforce in, in, I guess, two different factors. So we need the experts in health informatics and um, often they are clinicians. Myself, I trained as an occupational therapist, they're not always clinicians, but I think I think a third of our certified informati- informatics professionals actually are clinically trained. So, um, um, so we do have a lot of clinicians who are also clinical informaticians. But then we need the majority of the workforce, which is we're talking hundreds of thousands um, of clinical care professionals who need to understand something about digital health or health informatics just to practice medicine in 2017. Um, because what happens is if you don't understand the why of these things, what ends up happening is your hospital buys an EMR and you get told, oh, look, you know, uh, you know, unless you're in the loop, you get told that, uh, look, we the hospital's bought uh, an electronic medical record system. Friday, you have to come to a training seminar for four hours and we'll teach you how to use the system. And and by and large, these systems aren't designed for the clinician, the user in mind, to be honest. They, 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 they're getting better, these products, but the legacy systems uh, weren't designed with any sort of co-creation in mind. So um, they're built for functional purposes. Um, And a lot of clinicians really don't like using them because they can interrupt their workflow or that they don't integrate with the really busy clinical workflow and the way that clinicians need to have information presented to them in a very short period of time so that they can make the right decisions about about the person that they're caring for. So um, what ends up happening is that the systems aren't well designed. Um, they get told how to use the system. And so they use it at a bare minimum um, and they don't really understand why. Uh, and that that's pretty much what my PhD looked at as well was, you know, what, what will help someone actually understand the why of why they need to use a system that is digital rather than bits of paper and post-it notes, and uh, and the result always shows the same. And it's it's pretty common sense, to be honest, that if you understand that there's going to be a benefit to you as a clinician and a benefit to your patients, then uh, you will use a system even if it is isn't well designed. And that's that's the best bit in the education piece that we're missing is that why we need to do these things Mm -hmm. and and how it can benefit patients and benefit clinicians. And so we do a lot of work uh, on that. And and we actually have uh, international links where various countries, we're all working on this together, um, which is a a really great uh, privilege to be able to do that too.
0: For sure. And and I could definitely see how a clinician, if they're properly trained into why they're doing this because they're saving lives would be much more likely to spend a little more time trying to figure out how to use it rather than just uh, chalking that up to company policy and not and going back to the way that they're used to doing things
1: that's right yeah clinicians are really really smart um so they're also excellent at workarounds so um i don't know if if, um i haven't been into the u.s hospitals to see if this is the case but i know if you go into australian hospitals you know like just basic privacy security having a you know um proper passwords and, and uh, proper ways of uh, authenticating yourself before you get access to records. And yet the amount of times you'll see post-it notes yep. um, with passwords uh, stuck on monitors <laughs> and that sort of thing. So we're moving away from that, but yeah, people will work out workarounds if it makes their job easier and if they get the benefit from doing that.
0: Beautiful. So, so Louise, I just wanted to spend a minute talking about IOT and how IoT technology can help with health informatics.
1: Cool. Um, just do you want me to just wax lyrical about that, or?
0: <laughs> well, you know, let's talk about a use case. And, and you know, let me start off with um, just saying a little bit about what I do. So, I work with IoT technology, and one of the things I've done recently is a demo about IoT in healthcare. How you know how it is when you have somebody that's an elderly person. Living alone with, let's say, a heart condition, uh, it's a very difficult time in their lives and the caregivers need to make a difficult choice. Do we let them live at home? Do we move them to a nursing home, which means ripping them out of their home? Do we maybe hire a living caregiver, which can be expensive and also uh, impinge on their privacy, which makes them unhappy? and one of the things i i talk about with iot technology is that we can utilize that in order to give people their dignity as well as save on costs so for example if you have something like smart textiles with uh ekg leads embedded in them which will help you monitor their heart and smart blood pressure monitor which is just a smart watch and um, reports their blood pressure and so on and so on, where you have these technologies that are working together in order to uh, monitor a person's health. So then that enables people to live at home in, in, in dignity, in their home of their memories, um, utilizing technology and keeping them safe at the same time. So one of the things I was thinking as you were talking is that one of the benefits of IoT technology is their logging capabilities and ability to interact and interface with multiple systems.
1: Yeah. Oh, look, I couldn't agree more. Um, actually, um, before it was called IoT, when we were just looking at sensors in, in in the people's ambient environments and that sort of stuff. So this was back when I was doing my PhD so um, uh, when did I finish that? About uh, 2009. Um, my plan before I got this job was to then go and do a postdoc looking at how we can use sensor type technology and sensors embedded in everyday objects uh, to benefit elderly people. So um, uh, so it's really exciting to see that um, we're finally, well, we're not really there yet. The technology is there, but we certainly
0: Culturally, to we're getting there. Yeah.
1: But culturally, yeah, yeah. And the technology is advanced so that it, we don't need cameras in people's rooms spying on them as well um, yeah. actually uh so just as an aside but actually just made me think of something what the very first speech i was ever asked to give um was to uh, i'd already graduated from occupational therapy but it was to a class of occupational therapy students and um it was like one of the graduating sort of things and i was a guest speaker and um to talk about how te- how ot's can be using technology and futuristic and that sort of stuff and i made my mum um i had a tablet computer at the time which was very rare i mean again i, I, I um iphones and uh, iPads didn't exist in that time. How far we've come. Anyway, and I, but I had a tablet monitor and, um, and I made my mum sort of hold it up to the refrigerator as though it was like a smart fridge and then I, doc- I took a picture and I doctored the pictures so I could start talking about internet fridges and what an internet fridge could do. Um, so sorry, you just reminded me of uh, that, which I did for my very first talk. Um, but, yeah, look, um, the technology has advanced a lot and culturally we're getting used to it, um, which we have got a few more advances in technology that need to be made um, before we can before I think it'll really take off Um, but I would certainly see that within the next five years and um, this is not an original quote I'm I'm not sure who said it actually but um, I I do believe that in the next five years a majority of clinically valuable information won't be collected in clinical care settings it'll be collected outside of them Um, and that means um, you will collect it yourself uh, um, through sensors that you might wear like your Saying the, the smart watch, um, the smart fabric in your sock or, or other device, um, the sheets that you sleep in, um, your toilet, um, doors that open and close in your house, those types of things. So, all of that um, data um, will be an incredibly rich source. And what I'm really interested in seeing, which is what you were, were talking about, Abraham, but um, is I actually think we can even use that technology to do effectively like randomised clinical controlled trials. So you could actually even roll it out into retirement village type places where, you know, certain you match them up and then some people get this technology embedded and others don't um, for the period of a year. And let's look at what comes out of that because what I think is when we have these technologies in place and the smart socks is a really interesting example because a lot of people think, if, if they're not from sort of our world, they think, "Well, why the hell would you need smart socks? Like, what? That's just insane." And um, that it tells te- you when
0: it's time to wash them.
1: <laughs> That's right. Well, look, that would be helpful for teenage boys. I had <laughs> a thought of a user case for that. That's good. But there, there's another use case. Um, and and there is two. So elite athletes. Um, you know how much money gets poured into elite athletes, making them run milliseconds faster and improving their gait just slightly so that they can just scrape over the line. Lots of money is spent on that. So if we could have, if you had um, socks that had uh, smart sensors in them and could detect those changes in gait um, at a much more sophisticated level in real time, you know, uh, elite performance athletes and their coaches could use that. But in terms of um, elderly people as well, we know um, we know very well, um, and it's a huge problem that if you fall over, if you have a fall as an older person, um, you will um, most likely have a um, dramatically reduced quality of life. Not just in the immediate aftermath of that fall, but potentially for the rest of your life, and you potentially a shorter lifespan as well. It's it's a big problem. And the all the things. The only thing that we do right now is, you know, we look at people's bone density. We advise them to exercise and stay strong Um, in their homes. Occupational therapists type people will say things like, we know, remove trip hazards, remove the rugs from the floors, and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, hey. That's better than nothing. But if um, if uh, if that person is able to wear socks that detects slight, slight, slight changes in gait, way before you as a, as an individual would recognise it, or someone watching would recognise it, um, and certainly not when you're going for a checkup once a month. That's you know you need this real time data. Then um, if a computer can detect slight changes in gait, that could emphasise that actually maybe Mrs Smith actually might be showing a little bit of weakness that has not been detected. Let's just get her in for some physio and podiatry and let's check things out. Then we could do some um, exercises, strengthen that. Then maybe we could actually prevent that, that potential fall from ever happening by using these types of devices. So that's, I mean, that's just one case, but I agree with you completely that um, this information and there's gonna be a lot of it um, will be incredibly valuable. And we just have to be smart enough as humans, we pretty much are, but we We have to be smart enough to harness that data um, for good uh, and and to use it for our benefit.
0: Beautiful. So, Louise, this is really fascinating stuff that you're involved with. And I'm really excited to see where this takes you. So tell me, how did you get started with this?
1: Oh, cool. All right. Well, how did I get started? So, um, I, as I said, I trained as an occupational therapist and in Australia, at least, I'm not sure, um, in other countries, but they send you out for what we call prac, which is sort of like embedded work experience. And you do it from first semester, year one, when you don't know anything, you're a complete neophyte. Anyway, and um, my, one of my very first prac experiences was in a hospital and it was in, um, in a, a, a effectively like a... a a day day facility for um, elderly people who would come in um, sometimes for respite for um, the person who was caring for them at home. Um, And a lot of them had um, chronic comorbidities. So they had very thick paper files, you know, sort of inch thick. And... um, And so they, after being there for a couple of weeks, they were, um, my clinician asked me to, if I would do an an, an interview with this patient and I was so nervous. And, um, so, but, you know, I wanted to be, you know, keep up my A grade student status. So such a nerd. So I asked if I could come in early and review her file. And I wanted to just commit as much of it to memory as I could so that I could not ask her dumb questions and questions she'd already been asked a million times before and, um, and to engage with her so the therapist said yes I got in early and after I don't know maybe twenty minutes I um I was really distraught looking at this file and I came out of the room and and said to my therapist look mate and you know I'm catastrophizing and I'm I'm thinking oh I'm gonna be a really bad OT because I don't understand what I'm reading. Like I, I I said to her I can't even find the OT notes. Like I see all of the progress notes all handwritten but I don't. a lot of the handwriting I can't read, I, I don't understand all these symbols and, and I don't know where, what, where, how do I find OT compared to everybody else. And, and I found an assessment form that I was familiar with and had been introduced to us early in our studies. But that's, about, that's like a five-page form and I could only find two pages of it, like where's the rest of it? And so I said, oh, you know, I'm so nervous and I'm not very good. Anyway, um, so all the therapists laughed at me. And they said, oh, you know, effectively, they were like, oh, love, you know, don't worry about it. No, 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 we should have told you that the OT notes are the ones with the yellow sticker. So in the margin of the file, if you look for the yellow sticker, then that's the OT. And, um, you know, and it occurred to me even back then, first semester, first year of a four-year degree in occupational therapy, that you have to be a pretty bad occupational therapist to kill people. Like you sort of would have to go out of your way, right? So, but not the case for doctors and nurses that really do make these life and death decisions. And the more placements I had, and I was just, I was actually quite astounded. And to be honest, I still am. I think it's unethical that um, we have such poor record keeping um, by and large in healthcare that we, it prevents us from being the very best clinicians we can be. It prevents us from providing the very best care that we can provide. Um, we do our best, but you know these systems are just shockingly poor. And um and so that's how I got interested in um in trying to fix this problem. Um, but I didn't know you could do that for a job. I was just really interested in that. And so you know I I finished my OT degree and I was planning on becoming an occupational therapist of course. And uh, I was offered a I think because I was just such a nerd and I was hanging out at the university all the time um, someone had rented some office space off, uh, off the occupational therapy school to do um they were employed to do research on uh what was at the time a telehealth trial rollout statewide in western australia where i'm from which is a really big state and, uh, and they wanted a research assistant. So I was offered the job. So I took that thinking, okay, well, I'll do that for three months because I love technology and healthcare. And, uh, and then I'll go be a real OT. And uh, to this day, I've never received a paycheck as an occupational therapist um, because that job led to one thing to another. Uh, before you know it, I was uh, doing consulting in this space and, um, and doing a PhD in this space. Um, and um, look, one other thing, I'll just add to the journey that because um, I think it's 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 true, it happened to me, but it's something that I try and foster now that I am the CEO of Heizer. Is um, I didn't even know about health informatics. It was literally when I was researching for my PhD, typing in all sorts of search terms like you know computers and nurses because there was never anything about computers and OTs. So um, you know, and I came across this term called informatics, and uh, in in America they tend tend to call it medical informatics or biomedical informatics. In Australia, we tend to use health informatics. Um, It doesn't really matter. It's the same thing, but it's tend to be, and the Australian healthcare system tends to be we like to think we're more focused on health and wellness and keeping people um, not sick um, than uh, than um, pure medical focus. So that's the difference in terminology if anyone was interested. Um, if not, I'm so, sorry for taking up 15 seconds of real life that you'll never get back. Um, but anyway, so, um, so, the, um, so I discovered this thing called informatics and I was just, I, I read about it and I was so excited and I was like, oh my God, it's not just me. Like, there's a tribe, there's there's people that I belong to and they're interested in what I'm interested in. And, oh, my God, and it was just this wealth of knowledge and learning that I could soak up. So um, I I joined the American Medical Informatics Association that day um, because you could join online. Heiser at that time wasn't as sophisticated. We had a website, but you had to email them to get sent a membership form. So I did that. And um, anyway, and uh, probably a year or so after that, um, the HIC conference the big conference was running uh, over on the east coast and i was a poor phd student and so i contacted um heiser and said look you know i'm a poor phd student i've been a member for a while you know is there any chance you could waive my registration fee if i could get myself over to melbourne and in exchange, I will, you know, I'll do whatever you want me to do. Like I'll hand out name tags, I'll stuff satchels, like any like random jobs you want to give me. And to my absolute delight and surprise at the time, they said yes. And um, and at that conference I did, I stuffed satchels and I handed out name tags, but I, um, I'm a good networker. And I would, you know, someone would come and say, oh, my name's Avraham. And I would find Avraham's name badge and I'd Handed out, and I'd be, oh hi, hi Abraham. Oh, I see you work at X Hospital. My name's Louise. I'm doing a PhD. Nice to meet you. I just introduced myself and um, and and soaked up and went to all the sessions that I could get to and loved it. Um, And about. Two months after that, I actually um, received an email from someone offering thinking that they had a project and thinking that a student who was doing a PhD might um, be helpful to that process. And that's really how my career kicked off. It was through volunteering and handing out name tags. Um, and then before you know it, I was getting off at all sorts of work because I, I, I never say no to anything. Um, so I was getting off at all sorts of work in the field and they were great experiences, building up my network, still volunteering um and uh, a few years after that i guess the the ceo of heiser resigned and i and i called him and just said oh well man you know what's the organization going to do without you and and we're still good friends actually and he said oh i hope you're going to apply for my job and i said, silly you know I'm just about to finish my PhD you know I've never run a business before I've worked for myself and I've worked for a lot of businesses but never run one and you know I've got other plans I'm going to finish this thesis and read a novel or play the piano and you know do read non-academic papers for a time being and um but he encouraged me and, and so did a good friend and so I applied and it was a competitive process but I, I made it through and um, um that was almost eight years ago um so we I, I'm a very believer on um you know putting your hand up saying yes um and I, I really like to um where i can hire um a lot of young people most of the staff that i have were in their 20s when i hired them there's only a few that um were um you know 30 30s and actually i don't think i've oh, i've hired one or two people that were in their 40s and it's not that i'm but i, I really like mentoring young people and and seeing people have a lot to offer and, uh, and um, just helping them steer them on this journey and, and uh, help our members to achieve what they want to achieve. So, um, so anyway, that's, that's how I got involved and how I landed here.
0: That is such a beautiful story. And I love, I love what you said, because basically what you're doing is you're describing the traits and best practices of a successful entrepreneur. I mean number one, you got your y down path you you found your calling and then you did whatever it took to get there you know which is something that people can learn from you you know just because you can't you can't find just because you don't have the money or you know you don't know how to how to get from point a to point b, so there's a way to solve the problem and you solve that problem. And then, yeah, there
1: really is. Yeah. Right? And, and the other thing is, Abraham, and I'm sure because I know you speak to a lot of um, leaders in, in this job, so you probably know more than me. But what I discover is not just if you do what you're passionate about, you, as I said, you never have to work a day in your life. And, you know, that's not something unique. That's a lot of people will say that. But my experience is it is true. I don't have work-life balance. I I just live my life, you know, and and yeah, you have bad days and times where you just think, Oh God, <laughs> I should have stayed in bed today and just had a June a day. But you know, by and large, those days are incredibly rare and um and I never once um you know regret any decision I made to get here and every day is fantastic but the other thing that I find is when you do what you love, other people are attracted to that passion and energy that you have Um, and then also um, when they see how passionate you are about whatever it might be um, your area of interest people want to help you with that Um, and people by and large I've found are incredibly generous are incredibly helpful um, and if you ask for help people will gladly give it, um, provide that you show that you're passionate that you're doing the work uh, that uh you know that's that's all you need i think
0: that is so true so louise i love your journey and i love your story um so let me ask you this uh what are some of the ups and downs you experienced along the way
1: oh yeah yeah well certainly way more ups than downs and um and the time that you do have the downs again providing you Got a clear why focus of why you do what you do. The downs are really, in the end, quite insignificant. Um, so lots of ups, and and I think the up for me is that. And I, I must admit, I um probably shouldn't um you know because this is going on YouTube, but I'll, I'll say it because it's true. I have like you know you're supposed to have a plan of okay, well after this then I'll do that, or you know especially in, in your twenties you think oh yeah by the time I'm forty I want to be here. So this is the how I like most people I know that's just crap to be honest. Most people just, you know, fall into things or follow their passion and and just say yes and then things happen for them. But one of the things that I find is that this job is just such a privilege. I don't really have any clue what i would do after it because i I think i got the best job of my life when i was just 34 and uh and so you know how could i possibly top this and um and and my story around the up the major up is what i love most about this is um the the position that i'm in and then the role that i have is that and and you know even talking to you today is that i um i want to influence as many people as possible because i'm only one person and i don't know it all i know a little tiny bit but if i can and um, if I can um, use my position to, and the role that I have to connect other people, to inspire other people, to um, to get them to talk to other people about what they're interested in and hope, you know, and particularly around digital health, then you end up influencing thousands upon thousands through the network. And that's what I'm really keen to do. Um, so that's, that's just a huge up because I get to do that pretty much every single day. Um, so that's a fantastic thing. Um, I guess there's a um, there's a recent up and uh, that is that we um, I just came back from China last week uh, where we attended the Medinfo Congress and Medinfo is the International Biomedical and Health Informatics Congress and it used to happen every three years and now it happens every two years and it's a like like the Olympics and the the world soccer and everything, and although it's not as glamorous as those things, and our budget's a little bit smaller, but you know we travel around the world, and and member countries decide where they will hold the next one. So I bid, um, I presented Australia's bid to host that Congress in Sydney in 2021, and I had some excellent competition, and honestly did not think that we would win. I thought, well, this is sort of our practice run, and then in two years' time I'll come back and present again. Um, but uh, our global People decided to vote for Sydney, Australia. So um, I'm so excited about that because in four years we get to host the international digital health and medical health informatics community in Sydney, and um, that'll probably have a couple thousand people. And we also get to show off, which I'm also looking forward to because I want to show off the brilliant people that we have here in Australia, and uh, and uh, you know bring the world here and uh, and bring us to the world. So that's one of the recent highs that I'm um, I'm really really pleased completely really
0: nice congratulations
1: thank you thanks yeah so that's really cool um some of the downsides um okay so there's Probably two main things. One thing which I was really unprepared for, and when I, I speak to CEOs of nonprofits, I've I found that it's it's the same. Um, we're not unique. Is that it's like you're in permanent startup mode. So while that can be exciting and invigorating, and you you need like constant energy um, all the time, um, it's also tiring um, because unlike a, a startup, we don't have a product where we can promote to VCs and get financial capital come into the business so I can hire the people I need to deliver on the vision. Every single thing that we produce, we have to create ourselves from scratch. Um, we have an excellent community of volunteers. Like uh, we have over 300 people who actively volunteer their time and, you know, we couldn't do anything without them. Um, but if we had some um, external funding, it would mean that I could hire the people that I need to get the jobs done. So instead of a project taking maybe three years to get off the ground, around, um, huge, I work an 80-hour week um, (laughs) still after all this time and, um, you know, and we um, have to rely on volunteers a lot and because you're working with volunteers, obviously the time spans have to change because you you can't tell a volunteer, well, it has to be done by Monday, too bad, like you're just so grateful (laughs) that they're giving over their time and expertise, so it's like whatever time frame you can work, I'd really appreciate it Um, and they're just wonderful, Um, but uh, not having the resources that we need to deliver, on the vision is, is is tough, and if I didn't care so much and believe so much, it would it'd be easier to walk away. Um, because it's it's really hard work. It's really hard work. So um, that um, funding and the resource constraints are really difficult. Um, so that's that's one thing. Um, and the other thing which um, I thought might be of interest, um, maybe just some of them, um, and you probably relate with other female CEOs you've spoken to, is that there are still gender issues that come up, which is incredibly disappointing and just drives me crazy. But, um, you know, I've sort of had to, I've found that that has happened my entire time here um and i i think it's not something that any individual goes out of their way to make life more difficult or to set a higher bar for a female i think it's just it's just um, unfortunately it's a cultural thing and maybe australia might be um you know worse at this than at some other countries but that's that's also a challenge um so that uh and which I find really depressing when when um I'm confronted with that occasionally and uh that is that's really disappointing that that is still a factor but you know all you can do is just rise above it and work really hard and uh and uh you know if really good people don't gender isn't an issue but it's it's still often subtly there and and that can be difficult
0: Yeah, for sure. And in fact, I've interviewed many female CEOs who've cited the same challenge
1: Absolutely, yeah. And in healthcare technology, I would have thought there would be even more women because, um, you know, a lot of clinical care professionals are females um, and at university level, it's pretty much even. Um, And if you look at a profession like where I train occupational therapy, 95%, actually, I haven't looked at the stats in the last couple of years, but in Australia, last time I looked, it's basically 95% of the profession are women in occupational therapy. And yet you still find a lot of um, leadership roles not taken up by women they're taken up by men and you know that's that's just that there's lots of like many many pages and videos on and hours on the internet devoted to those topics but um it is i do just find it a shame that uh that that is still an issue um i have um we have a i actually and yet to be honest because i run a non-profit women are really attracted to work in non-profits so i actually um i only employ two men and that's not on purpose like they're just the most qualified people for the job but i must say i actually uh, practice a bit of reverse sexism myself um when i advertise for a job i get so many females applying which is wonderful and i always try to encourage uh women um or Parents, just a matter of men or women who um, who aren't able to work full time because they um, have childcare responsibilities to apply and that sort of stuff. Um, because we, I can offer really flexible hours here and, um, you know, I, everyone has VPN access and a laptop. Half my staff work from home. I have a staff member in Croatia. I've never even met um, in person, only on video. So we can offer a lot of that. Um, but, um, uh, but I do sometimes find that in roles I actually self-select um, some men to interview that um, I wouldn't if they had a female name just because I don't get as many men um, um, actually Mm. wanting to work in a non-profit Uh, I haven't quite worked out why that is I think maybe they think the pay is lower or something but uh, yes but anyway so I I have heaps of women who work for me and they're fantastic and you go to our conference and there's a lot of women and there's a lot of female leaders Um, but as a recent example for instance um, next year is our 25th anniversary and so I put a call out to an email list that we run, which is full of senior leaders in um, in health informatics. Again, mostly Australian, but international people as well. And I just said to them, look, if I could invite one or two like giants in the world of health informatics from across the globe uh, for next year's birthday and to talk about you know how far our profession has come and all that sort of stuff. You know, any anyone you could recommend, and you know, uh, no bar is too high. Like we'll try and get them. And um, I've had. I reckon maybe 20, 25 names, no women. Not a single one was, uh, you know, and it wasn't until I spoke to two people when I saw them in person and mentioned that. And I said, did you see that email I sent? And I said, I, I, and there are they're wonderful, fantastic men in our field. And, and some of the leaders in our field when it was established were men. Um, so it, it makes sense that people would gravitate to that. But I couldn't, I was surprised that in a list of 200 that, um, and uh, that, you know, roughly 200 people and 20, 25 responses that um, I didn't get a single, uh, not a single female. And it was when I asked those two people and I said, and I mentioned this, they were like, oh, wow, well, what about, you know, and then they emailed me and gave me some female names, but they're, they're not the ones who come in front of mind. So, you know, that's a, a recent example of that. So there's still work to be done.
0: Absolutely. So this kind of segues into the next question, which I think we already answered, but I'll ask it anyways. And what keeps you motivated every day?
1: Yeah, what keeps me motivated is is that why, is that healthcare is, is broken, I'm sorry to say, um, but it is. and um, But it means, you know, there's a lot of work to be done. And um, and I'm absolutely convinced as are hundreds of thousands of people across the globe, that um, if we can be much smarter about how we integrate technology and build technologies in healthcare, we can actually make use of the information. And it's because it's not really about technology. It's, it's about the information and using that information to improve patient care. So that's what keeps me motivated. Um, I look forward to the day when actually I can retire or, you know, go do something else, be that florist or something (laughs) Um, because it's like, well, we fixed that, you know, healthcare is all connected. The silos are gone. Um, You know, people no longer um, experience adverse consequences in healthcare because clinicians don't have the information they need to make the right decisions. Clinicians are happy with the high quality of the technology they're provided to use. Um, I look forward to that day and um, I'm not going to quit till we have it.
0: (laughs) Great. And then you could sit on your rocking chair and knit or go fishing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'll think of something to
0: do, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Beautiful. Uh, We kind of discussed this as well, um, but I'll, I'll ask. So where do you see yourself in, let's say five years from now?
1: Yeah. And it is a really interesting question. Um, One of the things I've learned about myself and Australians are really, um, we're really more modest. We're not great at selling ourselves. And I say that because Americans are awesome at it. Like Americans just generally speaking are so good at that and, and we're not very good at it. Um, and so, but one of the things that I've, I had to, get at peace with is like I've got a girlfriend who does excellent work in her field. Um she is not on social media at all. Nobody knows her name. She is um she's not even on LinkedIn like you really can't find her. And um and she wants to she's very happy being that backroom scenes person who's doing excellent work and making the world a better place and helping other people but she doesn't need any of it attributed to her. She doesn't want it to be attributed to her. Um, And I'm quite different. And and I I do want to be front and centre like I am now and and hopefully still will be in five years' time um, and for the rest of my career. But it's it's not because it's about me. It's because I actually find... um, And I had to sort of work this out for myself as well. um, And and I thought, well, actually, one of the unique skills and the gifts that I have is being able to inspire other people and, and, uh, you know, and motivate them. And so I'm best placed, um, you know, on a stage uh, in front of a group of people, leading a group of people i 'm um, also very really happy to be a follower as well um, it 's not a competitive thing, but you know to to get people moving and to because we, we, if we're going to improve healthcare, it's a, it's a huge movement and we need lots of people involved to do it. So um, I don't know where I'll be working. Um, it'll Actually, if, um, because we've won this Congress in four years' time, um, I probably will still be here. Um, so, but wherever I'd be, I know I'll be still advocating for improved healthcare uh, and, and empowering clinicians and empowering patients through uh, access to information. So I'll be doing something that fits that bill.
0: Beautiful. And if there was anything that you could change, if you could rewind the clock, let's say 12 months, would you be doing anything differently?
1: Uh, the Only I have thought about this before, cause I'm not really big on regrets. Um, and the only thing is, that I I think maybe, but maybe not, is that I grew up in a really small country town where um, I'm not only the only person in my family to go to university, let alone have a PhD, let alone have a job where I'm the CEO of anything. Um, Even people from where I'm from don't, um, that's a rare thing. Um, You know, um, most people become farmers and, and have a, um, uh, have a different life than the one I've chosen for myself. And because of where I'm from, it didn't occur to me in my teen years when I was studying um even when I was at university it never occurred to me that I could be in a position where I could have influence over other people and and try to improve the world through that um and so I think if I was to look back and give myself advice like instead of spending my teens um working in my uncle's fruit and veg shop and you know being a secretary and doing all of these jobs that it like it never bothered me doing them at the time I really liked them I really like people so they were all but they didn't help me benefit um they didn't help me get to where I am now I guess um I sort of had to come around that by accident almost that even to understand where my skill sets are and I think maybe if I had um people around me um more so when I was you know 19 20 that could have perhaps given me um more direction about where like my, where they saw my strengths and abilities and where I could you know best harness and focus them and, and learn to improve them that maybe I could have just got started earlier um, but at the same time i wherever whatever I did I I got to where I am now which I just love so you know I, I'm not sure whether I really want to change it but that, that's one of the things I, I do often think about um you know if I if I had a school counsellor who gave me better advice than the advice I got, which was, I was a straight A student, but the best advice I got was, oh, maybe you could be a journalist, uh, you know? <laughs> and by the way, journalism's fantastic. And, and I actually quite often think, oh, what if I did that? But you know, it's a dying career journalism, unfortunately. Well, but, everybody's
0: know, become their own journalist. Like, look at what we're doing.
1: That's right. Yeah, yeah. So it's a really tough gig. And actually, I, I believe in journalism so much. I, I'm actually a paid subscriber to publications that um, do do investigative and, and deep dive journalism. But that's that's one of the things I, because I didn't get any of that advice. I didn't get it from school counsellors. I, I didn't get it from um, people I knew in those early I didn't know. I, I thought, I thought I got straight A's because I was from a small country town and there was no competition. <laughs> you know, I didn't realize that um, maybe even if I was a small fish in a bigger pond, that I would still do. Okay. Um, and so sometimes I think maybe things would have turned out faster. I don't think they would have turned out different, but maybe I would have got there faster. I don't know, but we'll never know that. But.
0: Exactly. That's the beauty of life.
1: Yeah, that's right. Absolutely.
0: Awesome. So Louise, there's this statistic that many small businesses fail in the first year of business. Where do you think entrepreneurs may be going wrong?
1: um, Not understanding the problem that they're trying to solve. So um, and, you know, because the great entrepreneurs um, are, are, are great leaders and and they identify a problem. Um, they don't necessarily have to own the problem, but they identify it, they apprentice the problem and they really understand it and they understand what they can do that's different and unique to help resolve that problem um, and build a great group of people who are far smarter and cleverer than you are. You know, that's, that's what makes success in any business. Um, And in healthcare, I I certainly know healthcare more so than other organized other uh, industries, but actually this morning, I, I was still lying in bed this morning when a tweet, got me interested (laughs) i was looking at my phone in bed as i know you're not supposed to do but everybody does So i'll just admit to it on youtube um but um that uh it was the um the pitch deck for the guys who founded uber and their original pitch deck when they were asking VCs for money. And it was interesting what they thought would be the key focus of their business. And they got some of it wrong, but a lot of it right. And, you know, and I think in, um, in all industries, you really need to understand the problem. Uh, and if you're in an industry such which is as complex with as many wicked problems and chaotic problems as well as healthcare. You really do need to understand it, um, so that you, so that the solution that you're providing actually deals with this, um, not just a symptom, but actually deals with the core of the problem. And um, that is where not only do entrepreneurs get wrong, but a lot of uh, venture capitalists in health, health. Also, sorry, my my dog in the office. See, I have flexible Ruby. Someone just waved um, through her, and so at her, so she's now. I have to try and quieten her up. I've got the toy to her. Ruby, come here. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping she would be quiet. <laughs> she's anyway. pretty
0: good. She was quiet for an she was hour.
1: She's quiet for most of the time. Usually yeah. she's pretty quiet, but yeah, someone, she just saw someone's head pop by the office and they were probably waving or something and now she's frustrated. Come here. Do you want to be it? come on camera? There you go, so people can see you. Here's Ruby. Hello. Hi, everybody. <laughs> Say, stop looking at the door. No one's there. <laughs> anyway that's one of the perks of
0: working for a uh, non-profit
1: yes we have a dog friendly workplace um we have a couple of dogs in here so uh and everyone's welcome to bring their dogs so uh no it's a good stress reliever and usually they're quiet (laughs) (laughs) anyway sorry okay but yeah so i think that's the main thing where um where people go wrong is is um thinking that they understand the problem but they're really just understanding the, the symptom not the real problem and you do have to be um uh It's also hard being an entrepreneur, isn't it? I mean, you know, like I I know entrepreneurs who, yeah, they they sleep at the office and they do long hours and, you know, they don't see that changing anytime soon because there's just, uh, if you really understand the problem, uh, things can be quite difficult to solve. So you've got to establish a good team around you and and get things done. So hopefully that with with the dog disrupting didn't change my answer too much.
0: No, that was beautiful. So let's take a moment and just uh, give a little plug for your podcast. So dissecting digital health, which is what we're honoring this episode with uh, the title. Uh, So just let's take a moment and just talk a little bit about your podcast.
1: Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, look, I, um, uh, so the, the podcast is called Dissecting Digital Health. And um, I speak to leaders. Um, uh, um, and sometimes I speak like people who are really well known in our field. And I also speak to people that no one's ever heard of before. I've spoken to some students that I think, where well, in a few years' time, everyone's going to know this person. Um, and uh, and the reason behind it is because, um, and maybe it might be a similar motivation uh, for you, for your show here, Avraham, But what I find is that there is brilliant, amazing people solving, um, doing their best to solve these healthcare challenges, um, work dedicating their entire lives to it. And um, I want to profile them. I want to give them as much of a platform as I can. Um, and um, so one, I want to profile those people and, and, and give them that platform. But the other thing is that I find in our industry is that people don't know how to get started or they discover it by accident as I did. Um, you know, when I was doing a Google search and, and discovered this thing called health informatics. Um, and so people aren't really sure how to get involved and, and how to start or they know a little bit, but they're too nervous and or they don't know anyone. and Or uh, like I had a doctor friend recently who, um, has, uh, you know, uh, is studying informatics. Um, I'm going to put her down now. Bye bye. <laughs> um, but, um, Uh, who was advised by his peers and his mentors um, who are on the standard medical track not to get off that standard, you know, treadmill and go do informatics because would you do that? You know, that seemed to be too risky. And so the other reason which I ask people about, I always say to people, look, you don't have to study or prepare for the interview because I'm just asking you about you and you know all those answers. And, um, and so I get them to talk about their journeys and how they arrived at where they're at and what they're passionate about and what it is they want to contribute to society. Um, and I'm hoping that, that by telling their journeys and their stories that it'll encourage more people to actually put their toe in the water and, and to get more involved in informatics uh, so um and it's been it's been good i'm really like we it's a niche topic i get that but um you know we've already had over a thousand downloads of that and um i haven't promoted it really widely at this stage so um yeah, i'm really wrapped with that so if you um if you're listening to this and you do choose to tune into the podcast if you have any feedback for me um please uh yeah i'd love to hear from you and i think
0: sure absolutely and where could people download your podcast
1: um, everywhere. So it's on iTunes, Google Play and SoundCloud. And it's also a Medium blog as well. So um, I put the transcripts and quotes and things on blogs in Medium. Um, and I'll just let you know, Google Play doesn't exist in Australia for podcasts. Um, so I've been told by my American friends that, you know, all the backend stuff that me and the producer do to put it on there, it works and they can get to it. But I can't download it myself. So. <laughs> so I just When I first launched, I'm like, I was like contacting people and I'm like, I'm really sorry to bug you, but can you please try and play this in, in Google Play and let me know if it works um, because it's not available yet in Australia. But apparently it does work. Work if you're in America.
0: <laughs> Perfect. Well, I'll check that out for you, and we'll post the link on the show notes so people can download it. Thanks, Abraham. Great. So, Louise, you're in such an exciting industry, and just the field that that you're in, and the work that you do. Uh, so many people are interested in that, and we've gotten such a great response from our uh, listener base, and they've submitted many questions. So our first one is from Michelle McBain, who's the chairperson for CompTIA's Advancing Women in Technology from Albany, New York. And Michelle says, I would love to know your perspective on how to encourage other young women and girls to pursue careers in technology, medicine as a whole. And what was your biggest challenge and how did you overcome it?
1: Okay. Um, Well, thanks for the question, Michelle. Um, And I think all I know about how to encourage other people in the field is actually by being passionate about it and showing them what you can achieve. Um, and I find women love challenging roles and and really want to be able to. Someone still. I my staff know knew that I was doing this sorry and then bugging the dog <laughs> sorry anyway um so I think um that just by being present and um I do try and do everything I can to make sure that women are very present in whatever we do so that we make sure that our conferences uh have um as close to equal as we can gender representation sometimes there's even more women than men as I said, my organization is pretty much run by women. Um, So I I think by offering an example to women is something that, is I actually feel it's a a moral imperative that I have. And and hopefully, Michelle, that that's something obviously that I I will look up your organisation. It sounds really interesting. Um, So I think just by offering that, that letting them know that there are opportunities. Um, And in terms of the, the challenges, and I already mentioned in this interview that the gender challenges that are there, I think as long as we're, that we support each other is the best thing that we can do. So um, I have um, a lot of mentors, males and females, uh, and I take it upon myself to also be a mentor as well so that uh, um, so that, other people when they encounter these challenges they've got someone that they can ring and, and have a chat to so i like being able to i have a few people that i mentor i just uh if i see their, their if i can't answer their phone uh, their phone call because i'm in a meeting or something i just they know to text me and i will call them the moment i get a chance because sometimes they just might have a problem that's just cropped up right now today and uh they just want to talk through with someone and, and i try and do that so um i think if we can do that um to um, encourage more women to have, to know that you don't have to know the answers. That's also good.
0: Beautiful. Our, our next question is from Jamie Kataya, who's the CEO of tech and telecom PR firm, Jamie Scott and Associates from Los Angeles, California. So Jamie and, asks, what is the one suggestion you can make to telecom networks to help us deliver better service to healthcare providers?
1: Uh, that's an excellent question. Um, the, the better service is, um, from a technical standpoint, like things like reliability are a really big deal. And I know that sounds really boring, but... If, um, you know, like if, uh, if, if my internet went down right now, it'd be a bummer and, you know, Abraham and I would have to resume these questions at another time and he'd have to splice them together. But, you know, at the end of the day, no big deal. If um, if technology, if telecommunication, if we have telecommunication problems in healthcare, people can actually die as a result of that. Um, so that having um, high reliability in the services that you provide is really important. Um, but outside of the non-boring technical stuff, um, the other thing I would say is it's about relationship building in healthcare and I know that's a central tenet of all business that, so, you know, if you want to make a sale, get to know your customer but in healthcare, it is so critical um, and it's something that we see a lot in American companies actually that come to Australia and um, and they come to Australia looking to expand their market over here and um, they'll work with us and they'll give a presentation and we'll get people in the room and their slide deck will be full of American. They'll only have American examples and they'll just want to say, oh, we invented blah technology or this is what we're selling and it's awesome and you're going to love it too. And um, clinicians will, their eyes will glaze, it doesn't matter if, if you're right and your technology is the best thing ever, their eyes will glaze over and in their mind you're dead to them um, because you haven't bothered to learn about. Them and, and the challenges that they have. Um, you've already come in with a solution in mind. And that's it's a really different mindset when actually your business is in, I sell a technology solution. But in healthcare, the better way to do it is to form relationships, get to understand, um, apprentice the problem of what's happening in healthcare. And then don't tell us about the technology or the product solution that you have. Tell us about someone you helped. Tell us about that um, other healthcare client that you've had um, and what their problem was, how you went about helping them to solve that problem. Um, What challenges, like be real, we know these things aren't easy. What challenges did you face along the way? What was difficult? What was harder than you expected? What did you learn from that? That's, and tell that story, tell that narrative. And that's when people's eyes won't glaze over and they will pay way more attention to your story. And at the end of the day, Hopefully you'll still make a sale out of it. So hopefully Jamie, that's, that's helpful for you.
0: That is definitely great advice, not just for healthcare, but any industry. If you want to sell something, you've just given us the key to the city. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So our next question is from Carl Hornet. He's a QA tester for Spotify in New York city. So, Carl says, I would love to hear your thoughts on what healthcare experts would be able to do with big data sets from Facebook, Instagram, or Snapchat. What can you learn about an individual's or population's mental and physical health via their use of social media?
1: Yeah. Hey, Carl. (laughs) That's a huge thing. Excellent question. Um, So, um, yeah, and interesting that you work at Spotify. Um, There, okay, (laughs) You can learn a lot. Um, I was just actually at some presentations uh, with some colleagues of mine where they've actually done analysis on um, just what people tweet out as, as uh, and what you can learn from what people put on Twitter uh, about their own uh, health and well-being. Um, and there's more and more research being done on this. When you get to big data sets, like the type of information that Facebook can collect. And and most of these companies, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, um, they all have, although they're all a bit secret and they don't tell you what it is, but they all have game plans that they're building for um, healthcare because I'm sure that they've recognised that the data that they're collecting is incredibly, incredibly rich and healthcare has a lot of problems that need to be solved and us as individuals um, have, uh, you know, there's epidemiological publication health benefits as well uh, that we can use this data for so in terms of what can it use that data for it's almost like what can you not use the data for it's how long is a piece of string um it's a matter of um, the ethics around how you should use that data is really important. So, um, like for instance, our organisation and the researchers that I know, we wouldn't endorse anything that isn't about improving the health and the well-being of an individual or a population. Um, we're not really interested in technology for technology's sake or just analysing data to look at something that might help you sell a product. We're really interested in okay, well that's great if that happens and you sell a product in the meantime, but that you know your if your aim is to. Um, if your aim is to collect data on cancer patients, for instance, um, to help improve the quality of care they provide, improve the quality of life, and you manage to, um, you know, come up with a cure in the meantime as well, that's fantastic. Um, but that, that that those things should be your goal. It shouldn't actually be, oh, we're going to invent an app that's going to connect um you know cancer patients together and and you know and we'll sell that app you know that's if that's your focus as well you're also going to have a limited lifespan um if your focus is on the data and using that data for the good of individuals and the good of populations that's where there's a huge amount of money to be made because we have a lot of problems that need to be solved so sorry that's a bit vague but it was a huge question (laughs) if we ever catch up carl we can um email me. I'm, I'm happy to catch up with you next time I'm in the States.
0: <laughs> awesome. I'll uh, make sure to pass that along to them. Cool. Great. Our next question is from Erica Simon, who's the director of business development for RCT technologies in Denver, Colorado. So Erica asked, what do you think healthcare will look like in 10 years? And will the way we deliver medicine look anything like it does today? If so, in what way?
1: Yeah, great question, Erica. Um, So I think it will be drastically different. And I actually hope that it is. Um, At the moment, the way the healthcare system generally is structured is that we take people in their most precious most vulnerable state ie when they're sick or when they're caring for somebody who is unwell and we require them to leave the comfort and um, of their own home and we require them to you know head to Mecca you know we, we make them go to we make them leave their own environment and go visit a general practitioner or you know um, a, a physician we make them go to a hospital and we put them in um, environments that are um, that are not well suited to maintaining their health, health and well-being, And we can't change that overnight. I mean, that's the way the healthcare system is structured. And if you need expensive, um, a big expensive machine to run a diagnostic test on you, then of course, you have to leave uh, leave your home and, and go to a facility that has that big expensive machine that can do that test. But that's not the future of healthcare. Uh, the future of healthcare will be, and I hope it's within 10 years, that you will only be in hospital because you're really quite ill and you need nursing Care or you've had an operation, though those types of things. Um, generally, we want to see more and more people being health, healthy, and well, living in their own homes and utilizing technology to connect themselves and, importantly, their their data and their information to healthcare providers who can help them maintain that wellness. Um, so, examples could be, for instance, if. Um, if you're not feeling that well at the moment you in Australia, how our system works is you go to your general practitioner, your GP. You have to make an appointment that costs about $40 um, and you have to take time off work and you go see the GP and the GP might think, mm, yeah, um, I'm actually, I'm going to need you to send you for some blood tests. So, they'll write out a paper prescription or they, they type one out and it, they still print it off in Australia. They give you a piece of paper and then you've got to take more time off work and remember you're not feeling well. And then you've got to trot all over, find uh, somewhere, mate, wait in another long queue where they're going to test your blood. And they take your blood and, uh, and um, then a bunch of diagnostic tests are run on that blood and uh, that might take a week or sometimes even longer. Then you have to make another appointment, go back to your general practitioner to get the results of that blood test. That is all completely unnecessary as technology is evolving. So, There is no reason, uh, just like we're having this interview now, um, Abraham, that you couldn't be my doctor. And I couldn't have scheduled a time with you or see if you're free. You could run, you could be asking me your questions. And even if you worked out that I needed um, a blood test or you needed to somehow physically examine me and I had to come in and see you. But at least then we know that's not a waste of your time or mine. You know, whatever it is can't be done online. So um, and we're not there yet, but we will be soon where um, where um, tests will be. I won't need to go and have, you know, litres of blood drained from me to have all of those diagnostic tests that take a year um take a week um either that will be able to be done in a gp clinic or actually even in your own home so um of course which i won't go down that trap because it's a big big uh, hole but um theranos um and their technology was sort of a, that was a promise of that now that didn't pan out but you know there's no reason that that couldn't eventually that someone else will nail that that we only uh, a very small amount of blood that a machine that might be connected to my eye phone could actually um, diagnose a bunch of conditions that are, or things that might, um, uh, indications, I guess that would be in my blood sample. And if I can do all that from the private of my home and and have this consultation with Dr. Avraham online, and then he says, well, whether, you know, what the next steps are, that's where healthcare will be. Um, and where, where the, 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 that was an example, but the general trends, Erica, is, is where we're where much more patient or individualised focus, where it's um, putting the power in you as the individual to maintain and keep a record of your healthcare information and, and decide who you're going to share that with. Uh, and a lot of that information will be, as we've already talked about in this, um, in this interview will be uh, uh, collected, uh, not within healthcare institutions. You'll, you'll collect it yourself uh, and your environment will collect it for you. So that's going to be exciting. I think. Sure,
0: absolutely. And I love that title of uh, being a doctor. I think I should look into that. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Great. So our next question is from Mark Dressner. He's the CEO of Office Evolution in Hackensack, New Jersey, and he's also a fellow Australian. Oh, so, hey, Mark. <laughs> yes. <So laughs> Mark asks, ubiquitous access to personal medical health records are key for many digital health solutions. Is this realistic? And if so, how can we overcome these hurdles? And the two hurdles that Mark lists are individuals' concerns about sharing personal information And the second one is existing medical record systems strategically preventing other systems from accessing medical records to create barriers of entry for competitors.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, Mark clearly work is not new to this field. Um, a lot of entrepreneurs don't know that. <laughs> and when they discover that, they're surprised and they go to their business model. Um, okay, first one, um, privacy and, and security. Um, look, we can, um, it, it's, it would be completely false to assume that um, when we store information digitally and when we make that information available, even securely online, that it is a foolproof system and no one can ever get access to it. Um, that is a concern. However, the... Um, there are a lot of protocols technical and um, and social that uh, are you can put in place to protect your data the best you can. And I think what's really important, and and certainly the way that we're heading in Australia with um, our government uh, medical record system called My Health Record, is that the data is controlled by you, the individual. You own your own data and you decide who has access to it. Um, And you can also withdraw that access at some stage. If you have a falling out with your physiotherapist and you don't want them to see your medical records anymore, you can block them from seeing that. Um, if you're in an emergency situation, there can be a break glass situation where the the people that are um, you know you're unconscious and you get rushed to hospital that they can that they can actually get access to that key information. And while those security um, protocols need to be in place, it isn't a foolproof system, so it is a risk. But if you look at the statistics of um, which we've already covered on safety um, safety and uh, things that actually happen because we don't have these information,s um, In the hands of doctors and nurses when they need it. I think the benefit is far weighed into making your information available electronically and for you to control it yourself. That's really key. So you control who accesses it for you to provide clinical care to yourself. Um, You should be able to control it who has access to your data for research purposes um, and all sorts of things. Um, So hopefully that sort of answers that question um, a little Mark. Um, In terms of the other thing um, and I'll, I'll just it's say a little bit, sorry, my answers are a little long, Um, but um, that yes, the traditional legacy systems that are throughout healthcare are, um, are systems where they are, um, they're built to basically be, um, to be standalone or you know closed systems there are no open api interfaces uh, in these traditional systems it's all about um, oh well if your hospital wants a pharmacy system as well as something on the ed or in icu then you can also buy that from my company and we'll connect it all for you Um, no no you can't go and buy x competitor product because they if the information won't be able to integrate with the information in the system that you've already purchased for your ed department and that has been this traditional business model um, of uh, software vendors in, in uh, healthcare. And look, let's face it, that business model isn't going away anytime soon, but it is, it is changing. So organisations, some of those organisations are starting to realise that their um, biggest opportunity, not just their biggest threat, but their biggest opportunity comes from entrepreneurial startup space, where people have some fantastic ideas for technology. They understand the problem. They've been working with clinicians to understand it. Um, and you know you can make money doing that. So some of them are now moving to have, uh, to looking at developing open API interfaces so that the technologies can, um, they can talk to each other effectively. Um, The one thing, Mark, that we don't have, which I... I... I'm on this soapbox all the time. No one ever wants to listen to me. So (laughs) maybe you guys will, Um, that governments um, and in Australia, uh, you know, we have uh, less concern about government interference than you do in America. But all they need to do is regulate that in Australia, for instance, our healthcare system is majority public owned. So all government would need to do here is to say in our procurement guidelines is um, is that if your product, if you want us to be able to purchase your product or to consider it as a as an option it needs to abide by these standards of interoperability and importantly semantic interoperability um, and so if your product actually is a closed system and doesn't allow any data in or out um, or sorry out um, or to connect to others then i'm sorry you just you know that's cool you can do that but um we can't purchase your system and so if governments were to make that quite small regulatory change then massive amounts of change would happen then all of a sudden there would be business case for these legacy people to open up their systems and make that data more um, and to think more creatively than perhaps they have in the past of how these um, sharing data and opening up those data can actually be um, uh, an opportunity for them uh, not necessarily a threat Um, but until that day happens yes if if you're an entrepreneur and you're listening and it's all about and I hear this a lot that oh well it's going to be great because you know, blah, blah, blah. Where are you going to get the data from? Oh, it's in the GP systems or it's in the hospital systems. We'll just get it from there. Yeah. No, do your research because most of those systems are not going to let you, even if they wanted to, um, they're not going to make it physically possible for you to get access to that information. So um, yeah, back to the business, back to the drawing board, if that's your business model.
0: Great. Isn't that funny how people vote with their wallets? And if you find a way to, integrate quote-unquote legislation with capitalism, you'll get a lot further.
1: Yep, that's what happens.
0: <laughs> awesome. So our next question is from Bill Corley. He's a technical engineer in the telecom industry in Piscataway, New Jersey. So Bill asks, how is a new technology affecting the way medical information is shared around the world?
1: Um, thanks, Bill. And uh, sort of hinted to that already. Um, so... Medical information, by and large, is not shared around the world. Um, um, As I said, I've already talked about how um, these systems are usually closed that are collecting information. Um, It also happens to be the case in research So what was really interesting is actually in one of my interviews for Dissecting Digital Health, I spoke to a young radiologist who's doing a PhD and in the field of artificial intelligence and machine learning. And he spoke a lot about his profession of medicine. He's used to, You know, people keep their research data to themselves because the research community is set up to be really competitive. Um, And, you know, you don't necessarily even talk to the guy down the hall because you might be competing for the same grant. Um, And then research findings are when they're published in an academic publication. And this is true in a very depressing statistic. It's been shown that it takes 17, 18 years before that finding that you've published becomes everyday practice uh, in the shop floor of healthcare. Um, So we're not a a culture that changes fast. So you're, um, so, but the, um, the what's really exciting, I think, in terms of how we can help information move around the world is in that research domain. So if the organisations that fund research start thinking of instead of, well, we want to cure cancer, so um, we've seen Abraham's proposal and we've seen Bill's proposal and we think Bill's has got a better chance of succeeding or it meets the needs of our research grant better, so we'll give Bill the money and not Abraham. What about if the organisation giving away that funding is actually it's about um, using the data that we already have collected and combining that data to actually mine it for real insights. Um, and that is something that, if you're in the fields of data, um, it, you'd be like, Of course, why? Wait, what do you mean that doesn't already happen but that's by and large not how that how it works in healthcare. so i am really excited bill about the future opportunities of research in terms of epidemiological and public health and how we can solve some large problems which might be something as large as cancer um, by looking at combining people's data around the world which you as an individual could choose to opt into as well so if you're a patient that has that condition through technologies that could connect you in with research trials you can can share your data easily uh, and for research purposes because at the moment all these trials that happen are incredibly expensive um, and by and large have a huge value rate uh, because they can't even get people to sign up to the to pharmaceutical trials those sort of things so i see that i'm not sure if that was where you're going with your question bill but hopefully that's, uh, that's um, that answers some of it for you of where i think some opportunities lie
0: Great. So our next question is from Lisa Samitaro, founder of Keller Williams Realty in Ridgewood, New Jersey. Lisa says, "I see the tremendous value in collecting health data from both, a, and let's see if I can pronounce this, epidemiological and individual standpoint. But I'm concerned about the potential for individual data to be collected and used by insurance companies yep. in a way that could compromise an individual's access to healthcare." Can you address privacy issues surrounding the collection of health data?
1: Yeah, thanks, Lisa. Excellent question. And it's something that, um, again, needs to be properly regulated. So, in Australia, for instance, um, uh, I know more obviously about the Australian laws, but um, it actually is illegal for health insurance companies to access um, medical information uh, electronically outside of, there might be a particular case or something they need to but they, they just we have for instance health insurance providers that also uh, have healthcare professionals who work for them and they provide clinical care those two aspects of their business need to maintain their distance and they're not allowed to share that information and that's that's legislated in law um, for instance um, but one thing that isn't is um, if I was to uh, go get my genome tested for 23andMe um, that um, my health insurance company has no right to even know that i've had that done let alone to know what it says and that's legislated however life insurance these guys must have had better lobbyists working for them life insurers are so um so i'm obligated if i have life insurance to tell my life insurance company that i've had um my genome tested and and to tell them what the results of that are Um, which is why I do not have life insurance. Um, so, um, but that, that, that is a problem. Um, and the only way you can't, while people who might be listening might be a bit opposed to regulation. And I I get that because regulation can, um, pose unnecessary hindrances to business. But when we're talking about people's health and medical information and how that can be used for good, um, how it can be used for evil and to hurt people, um, we need regulation. If we think that the, um, that health insurance companies are going to regulate themselves and just say no, no, we really won't use it um, um, for any purposes except for that you can't do that. So, uh, so it is a concern, um, and it's something that um, that we do need, need to be mindful of um, for sure.
0: Great. Our next question is from Paula Steen of Rockland County, New York. So Paula says, looking at the data about the super elderly those people living to be 100 years old and beyond, what interesting data have you seen about them? And what advice can you give us if we would like to join that group while still having all our faculties?
1: (laughs) Yeah, Um, yeah, of course. Well, we all want that, don't we? Um, Yeah, look, I I think um, as healthy living, uh, you know, I mean, you've got to have good genes. I mean, Look, for instance, um, my dad has smoked every day since he was seven years old. He is now in his 70s and he quit smoking a couple of years ago, um, but his weight has ballooned out as a result of that. Um, but, you know, in, in on every health indicator my dad um should have cancer um and he should be um not with us anymore he has not lived a healthy life he has been really tough on his body he was a shearer um which means you bend over bend over um you know eight hours a day shearing really heavy sheep that weigh minimum 50 kilos so you know so that's he, he's had a tough a, a tough life and yet he's still here and why is he still here um because he's got some really excellent genes that i hope he's really passed on to me and my sisters um because so there, there is that genetic factor that you know nature versus, versus nurture and unfortunately we've, we've got the cards that we were dealt with on, on that regard um, unless the CRISPR technology which I, we're thinking that we can change people's genomic structure so CRISPR's something to look out for if you don't have some if you've got some genes in there that you wish you didn't have um but the other thing is I just think um I really do think and especially you're talking about like engaging your mind as well and I I really think it comes back to enjoying what it is you do like it doesn't matter if it's fishing if it's digital health if it's you know whatever really floats your boat and gets you interested that's you just keep to keep doing that um because that gives you a reason to live and a reason to wake up every day, um, even when it gets hard. And I think that the people who who live successful lives as elderly people aren't the ones who retire, having a really fantastic career and whatever it is they're interested in. And then they just sit around and watch television all day. You know, like that, that doesn't work. It, it's the people who are active and, and enjoying life. And, and, you know, and for those of us who are, who's unfortunately are going to find their lives coming to an end sooner than we would have liked, you don't ever want to regret a single day. Do you, you just want to live every single day? Like it is your last. And I know that sounds ridiculously cheesy, <laughs> but like, it, it's true. And if, and if you speak to people who've had, you know, uh, cancer survivors and that sort of stuff, that's, they often are quite appreciative of of that near death experience that they've had because it makes them appreciate every single day that they have and the simple joys that come from every day. So that's what I think, you know, a good secret is. And it's a good way for us all to live our lives as much as we can.
0: For sure. So Louise, I know you're a busy gal and we're going to let you go. Uh,
1: thank you so much. I, I God, We've chatted for ages. I don't know if anyone's <laughs> still with us after all this time. Maybe people are going to watch it in installments. But it's been such a pleasure. And thank you for the invitation. It's been great um, chatting to you today, Abraham. And thanks for the excellent questions, everyone who wrote in. Really appreciate that.
0: Absolutely. How would people connect with you, by the way?
1: Yeah, so it, well, I'm online all the time, as Abraham said in my introduction. So I'm on Twitter, Louise underscore Shaper, um, and um, my email address is is also easily able to be found, and it's CEO at Heiser, H I S A dot org dot au. Um, if you don't get a response from me on the very day that you email me, I, um, I think I have something like 50,000 unread emails in my inbox, but I do really try to connect with people as much as I can. So, um, please, please reach out to me and, um, or come to one of the events that I'll be speaking at.
0: Beautiful. And we're definitely going to check that out and I'll put all that in the show notes. Cool. So Louise, do you have any parting words of wisdom you'd like to share with the audience?
1: Ah. Uh, Hopefully my last one was a good one, but um, look, I just hope that all of you um, are having a really wonderful day and that you continue to, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast and, um, and that you keep listening to all the words of wisdom that you're going to hear from um, Abraham's other CEOs that, uh, that he talks to throughout the series. So thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Elise. Thank you so much for sharing your time and your wisdom. I really appreciated having you.
1: All right. Thank you so much. We'll see you. Hopefully we'll meet again one day in person. that will be great.
0: Absolutely. Take care.
1: Okay. See everybody. Bye.